You're listening to The Lively Show, episode 38. Welcome to The Lively Show. I'm your host, Jess Lively, and this blogcast is designed to uplift, inspire, and add a little extra intention to your everyday. Welcome to The Lively Show, guys. Thank you so much for all of the birthday tweets and emails and messages. Yesterday was my 30th birthday, and I took the day off to spend a day with Mr. Lively. He had a bunch of things planned, including what ended up being a surprise party at one of my favorite restaurants here in Austin, the Josephine House. And one of the guests even happened to be my little brother, Michael, in town from Phoenix, Arizona. So it was truly an awesome day, and it was really nice to just kind of celebrate this new decade for myself. If you would like to leave me a little birthday gift, I have a request to make. If you have loved the show, please, for my birthday, go leave a review on iTunes if you haven't already. Those reviews mean a ton to me. I read them every single day and cherish them. And they help show how much you guys really love this show to potential guests. So basically what that does is it helps me share how much you guys love the show for guests that I want to have on the show. So it's going to help me continue to get awesome guests in the future for you as well. So if you want to give me a little birthday gift, please go leave a review. It would mean a lot to me. Obviously, an honest one. Thank you guys so much. In this episode today, we're speaking with Lauren Lax of MeantToThrive.com. Lauren had a 14-year battle with anorexia in her own life, and she now has turned her, what I call, a mess into a message. She now helps other people struggling with eating disorder recovery to do a lifestyle redesign. In this episode, we're going to talk about how a single childhood moment at nine years old sparked what eventually became an almost deadly 14-year battle with weight and eating. We're going to discuss the miracle intervention that saved Lauren's life at the gym in her 20s, and we're going to talk about Lauren's advice for those who are struggling with eating disorders or for those that know someone they're concerned about who may be struggling with an eating disorder. The show is extremely important. It is a really touching, vulnerable, and open and honest look at eating disorders and what they can really become in our lives. And it really does translate to, I'll say, even if you haven't struggled with an eating disorder, the journey and the psychology behind what's really driving Lauren in this journey, you can really relate to in so many different levels, even if it's not an eating disorder for you. This episode is really powerful, guys. I really hope that it touches the lives of those who need it. If you know someone who could use this episode, please share it with them as well. Let's go to the show. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. Yeah. Okay. So let's get started and talk a little bit about your background and your story. Tell us how this journey began. Yeah, it's a pretty long-winded story, but shorter version of it. Um, I guess around the age nine or 10 is kind of when I started becoming more aware of body image and also like society standards of what is beautiful and what is accepted. I grew up in kind of like an upper middle class, leave it to beaver, Pleasantville kind of, I guess, environment in Little Rock, Arkansas. Great loving family. I did go to a private prep school where at a young age, I was just aware again of certain things, materialism and and beauty. So about the age nine or 10 is when I started really wanting to just fit in. And about that age when clicks started to somewhat form at my school. And I just remember 
wanting to be the most popular girl in school and kind of hanging out with the the popular girls at the time. But I was also a big floater. I, I loved people and I had a hard time being mean to other people too. So it wasn't really in my nature. I don't think to fully embrace what it maybe meant to be in a clique because I, again, just loved all sorts of people and was always friends with different groups or different people in different groups. But at the end of my fourth grade year, I distinctly remember just standing in a group of girls at like recess and the topic of weight came up and the queen bee of the popular girls just asked everyone what they weighed. She said she had just weighed herself the day before and that she was so fat at 69 pounds. And this is a fourth grader who weighs 69 pounds saying she's fat. Right. Yes. And so um, one by one, she just went around the circle and asked each one of us, like, what do you weigh? What do you weigh? What do you weigh? It was the first time I'd ever really thought about weight in a negative way. When it came to me, I, I, all I knew is what I had weighed at like my pediatrician's office during my Christmas checkup, which had been like maybe three, four months earlier. Weight was never an issue for me, and I weighed a healthy 80 pounds as a fourth grader. And when the question came to me, I remember thinking, I can't say. I, I'm like the heaviest here. And so I said, I don't know, I haven't weighed myself in a long time and just kind of like was very quiet and just remember going home that day from school and resolving that my plan was to lose 10 pounds at least and that I was going to be the most popular girl in school. As a fourth grader, that became the the goal. That became the goal that day um, and that spring. And I remember from there on, it was just, I started cutting out like kid junk food and said I was going to exercise a little bit more, like running laps around my neighborhood and stuff like that, like calisthenics at home. Slowly, it just started to become kind of an obsession um, as far as just, I mean, with the food piece, I remember I would stand in the pantry in my kitchen and my mom would be like, what you doing, Lauren? And I was like studying the nutrition labels and like memorizing how many fat grams and calories were in things and really learning that language. That's something I, again, had never looked at before. But um, when I saw, saw the word fat on any package in the pantry, I just equated that to being fat. So I resolved to eat as little fat as possible and to aim for zero grams of fat a day. Again, to the point where I just started to become an obsession and I really started isolating myself, um, unbeknownst to me, like really knowingly that I was doing that, but from family meal times and from like anything revolving around food for one, but also isolating myself in order to be alone to do more exercise in my room or to uh, read recipes and cookbooks or on the internet. It, uh, my side pastime, I guess, and I didn't really know that I was spending all this time doing until about that Christmas in my fifth grade years. This is about six to eight months after that initial fourth grade meeting that um, I went in for my kind of annual doctor checkup at that time. And I remember my parents thinking like, you know, something's wrong with our daughter. Does she have mono? Is she anemic? Um, I just was not looking like myself. And I had looked like I had lost some weight, had dark circles under my eyes, and my hair had started falling out some. I mean, I wasn't bald by any means, but I definitely was just not healthy. And so the doctor did lab work, and I was anemic because I wasn't getting iron or eating meat at the time. 
he wanted to look into it a little bit further and suggested that I go see a counselor just to check it out. And when I heard that word counselor, I had no idea what that meant. And as a 10-year-old, just remember like going to sit in this like sterile office with this lady asking me to eat cheese and crackers on her table and just think, I don't want to eat that. And why am I here? And just kind of, I don't really remember talking too much, but she referred me then to another doctor that specialized in eating disorders. And so I had to go there one day after school and take some assessment tests that asked me questions like, when you look in the mirror, what do you see? And how often do you find yourself thinking about weight? And just, I remember lying some on them thinking like they're onto something. I don't know what it is, but lo and behold, it just a lot of the clinical signs that I had were presenting with anorexia. And that's the first time I really heard that word. At what age are you at that point? I was 10, still 10 and a half by this time. And eating disorders to me, like all the only recollection I ever knew of what an eating disorder was, was a Karen Carpenter commercial for like um, an old CD that she had on TV. And my dad saying that lady died from not eating. And I just remember thinking at in like the third grade, why would someone ever do that? But that was all I knew of what an eating disorder was. And so when I was diagnosed and told I had this, it was very shocking to me and my parents. My parents were very much like, okay, we're going to eradicate this and, you know, just start eating and this will be done. Quick fix. I actually had the same, not to the same degree that you've had, but as many of my listeners know, I for nine years had eating issues on both ends of the spectrum. And when my doctor finally said something about my weight at 16, he basically said I was borderline anorexic. And if I didn't gain weight, they'd have to do something. And my parents were like, yeah, no problem. She'll just put chocolate sauce on her ice cream. Like they'll, she'll just eat more. It's that simple. Quick fix. Um, So yeah, I remember from there on, it was just kind of like, okay, the mission was to put weight onto Lauren, like from my parents' perspective. But in my heart of hearts, like I still, I didn't want to gain weight and I was like a pound away from my goal weight of my, you know, the little girl's weight that I wanted to be and thinking like, okay, these people want to take my goal away. And that means wanting to take my like chance of being like really popular and beautiful, happy, yeah, yeah. thinking that equated to happiness. And so it slowly began to become even more a power struggle between me and my parents. Once they knew what was up and I knew what was up, it was like, okay, they're going to try and take this away. And I don't really want that. I want them to get out of my hair. Yes. But when they would say, okay, it's time to start recovery. Like I didn't know what, what did recovery mean? And what was I really missing out on? I mean, I knew I, I for a while had been, you know, like hungry, I'd depriving myself in diet mode, but I really was able to ignore that because I think my goal was so pertinent to me, like on the forefront of my mind that I, I became very disconnected with what hunger was and actually found odd comfort in it because it knew, like I knew it was kind of like I was being able to be powerful or thought I was in a, like a natural human need is hunger, obviously. And that I was stronger than 98 99% of society, so I felt, to be able to deny myself that hunger and be able to lose weight. And so it just became more and more of my identity. And then that spring of my fifth grade year, like a few months later, nothing was really happening. I was going into the doctor every week and having to go see counselors and a nutritionist, and it was a whirlwind to me. And I would just go to the nutritionist every week. She'd say, 
add some cheese and mayonnaise and chips right here. And like, I would just nod and smile and like, okay, I can definitely, you know, do that. And, um, would just lie on my little nutrition things I had to bring back to her. My mom started kind of trying to sneak some things into my food and that didn't go over well, like sneaking just like extra butter that she would make potatoes with or, um, just trying to help me. So she thought, and it was, I mean, I only had the adverse, um, I guess, effect on where it became just a power struggle between us and the kitchen even. And I would only eat certain things like a healthy choice, lean or lean cuisine, frozen dinner. And it became like, okay, if that's what she's going to eat, that's what she's going to eat. So nothing was getting better. I wasn't moving anywhere as far as my health-wise or weight-wise um, where the doctors were wanting me to. And so I ended up being hospitalized for the first time the end of my fifth grade year. That's the first time I'd ever been away from home for more than a night sleepover. And just remember, like, that's where I felt really alone for the first time and remember thinking, like, okay, life is kind of sucking now. <laughs> I don't like this because you're kind of in a cage. Or that's what I felt like, and I still think about that as being a cage, but you're on bed rest, and you see all the nurses and doctors and the people on the outside, like, passing through, and you, if you even want to get up to go to the bathroom, you have to ask, like, the, put your call light on so they'll come. Someone has to monitor you when you're in the shower, and I would still exercise in the shower and do, like, air, like squats in the shower and um, whatever I could because I was going crazy being told what to do. And they would have to monitor your meals. So, like, Big Bertha would come and sit with me at my meals and my room and just watch me eat. And I just also remember feeling so sick or getting sick because my body hadn't had food in a while, like a lot of it. <laughs> and just re- like my body literally rejecting it and just because it couldn't handle it. And this is at 10 and a half? Yeah. So, I got out of the hospital four weeks later and. All that had really changed was my weight. Did you actually gain weight while you were there? I did. And I don't remember anything about numbers or how much I gained, but I just remember feeling awful about myself and just like, again, feeling like all the hard work I put into before I went into the hospital, like in my eating disorders, hard work sense had gone, you know, down and that I had to kind of just maintain and juggle this now and like be, be happy with it or content, even though I wasn't. Did you really feel like you were going to be able to, to become content or are you just like, no, I got to lose the weight a different way? No, I wasn't really in a mindset. I don't think to just want to be like there and be content. Like I still had my goals and felt like my goal was I wanted to lose weight or to be less. The cycle just kind of continued. Like I maintained for like maybe a few months my weight and just kind of everything could look good on the outside and smiles and rainbows and butterflies. My parents thought things were better. Then things would cater because I just couldn't hold a smile on my face anymore. I couldn't do it. I went back to the eating disorder pretty quickly thereafter. I mean, the only, the dangling carrot every time, like from, from 10 years, 10 and a half on out was just like, Lauren, you can go back to playing basketball. You can go back to doing dance and the things I like to do that I had been like sidelined from doing because I was told I was sick and I just was not couldn't do it. I had to focus on doctor appointments and counseling appointments during my week. So that was the only thing that I thought that was a motivator, I guess, for just holding on to any weight gain or trying to do better, quote unquote. But there would only be like season after season um, of ups and downs with my weight and hospitalizations that I would hold on to it for a bit. But 
each and every time I would just slowly start to set my foot back into the eating disorder and then quickly nosedive. And it was just because I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't hold on and couldn't keep what I felt was people-pleasing. And it was because that was very intertwined with my eating disorder, was wanting to be this good girl on the outside, like going back to even when the eating disorder started, very predisposed to an eating disorder. Just from that early onset, that personality I had in my me to want to people-please and want people to like me and care about what others think more than really... What's interesting there is that you were caring more about what your peers thought of you than your parents or anyone that was looking out for you or genuinely had your best interests at heart, right? Because you're actively defying them. Very much so. Well, I was trying to not defy them for, again, that maybe two, three months that I would get out of a hospital and try so hard to just please them and do what they wanted me to do. It was so, it's conflicting because what they wanted me to do, it's a healthy thing. But I was so entrenched in the eating disorder, too, that it wasn't what I wanted to do. I could do what they wanted me to do for a little bit, but then I would like just get overwhelmed and go back to the eating disorder. Did it feel like your friends then or the people that you're doing this for, right? Because you're obviously not doing it for your family. You're not doing it for the doctors, whoever you are doing it for, maybe just that one mean girl from fourth grade, right? Did you ever feel like they appreciated all of that hard work you're putting out there? Oh, not at all. <laughs> like I really, the actual approval of the exact people, that kind of went away because I became so isolated from people just in the eating disorder. Which actually is ironic because it's why you got into it in the first place is to be popular. Exactly. And so what ended up becoming was that eating disorder became my best friend. That just like, again, was a com- an odd comfort in a way. So it's so fascinating, right? Because this starts from this people-pleasing place. You end up not even pleasing the people that cared. Or did, they, did you ever get any validation in all of those early years of losing weight? No, not, not. I mean, I got validation from like feeling like, oh, Lauren, you're the, the thin girl or the skinny girl, like from there on out. But it wasn't necessarily always a positive thing either, like as far as the way people said it. But I guess like I got that validation, like, okay, I've kind of gotten that name. The identity is there. I am skinny. Yeah. I mean, it's so hairy and intertwined, but just where that like kind of ego booster for myself was just, I'm really good at this. And this is something the majority of Americans try to do, but no one can. <laughs> so feeling good in that sense, in a odd, sick way. <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, you can't even do other things that you enjoy, like the dance or the sports. Yeah, exactly. Where do we go from here? We're kind of like middle school, I guess now. Does it just continue throughout the rest of the year? Yeah, so <laughs> just on and on and on. Um, it did. It kind of like was just that cycle that I would go into a hospital probably every like six months become to that point where the doctors would be just like, okay, you're really not doing well. And just a few weeks would go by and my weight would be going in the wrong direction. Maybe I'd be maintaining it for a little while in a okay state and then just start reverting back. And so I'd be hospitalized. And just every time the hospitalization just felt like, you know, here's a Band-Aid, feed the girl Pop-Tarts and chicken fingers, and then she'll be better. I ended up going into my first inpatient, like away, away treatment when I was in the seventh grade. And my parents, I remember checking me out from school and saying, we're going on a trip. And so we got on a plane that day to go to Arizona and they took me to a place called Ramuda Ranch. And I just remember feeling like, what? (laughs) Like you're just dropping me off here. And 
it was the hardest thing I know for them to do too because the tears that I cried when they left and then uh, just throughout. I was there maybe three months at the most at that age. I was 12 at the time and I was probably one of the youngest there. I know now that treatment center I think takes like eight-year-olds just because it is become a more, I guess, rampant or just diagnosed disease at a younger age. Yeah, it was the first time I'd been away away that long and I could only talk to my parents once a week on the phone and it was just a very isolating feeling again and just feeling like, what am I working towards? And I mean, the biggest motivator was to get out and to, again, go back to playing basketball and dance if I was going to have to go through this. Like, that's, I guess, what recovery was all about. But I remember when I left that treatment center, they made me sign a contract that said, for the next six months or a year, you won't play these sports and you're going to focus on your recovery. And I just remember thinking, like, what a bunch of crock. I worked for, you know, all this time here and just resolving in my head again that I was not going to maintain or hold on to what I had worked hard or been forced to work hard on because it just always felt like um, I was doing something for everyone else but never for like really what did I want and what did you want and I wanted people to leave me alone (laughs) yeah I think I, I really lost touch of what I wanted but I knew I wanted autonomy and I wanted I did want to be healthy and happy and I wanted to go back to being able to do the things I love to do and it not to be an issue, like food not to be an issue. I genuinely did want that and I wanted the voice in my head to go away. Just that constant nagging of always having to be better. It was just always felt like it was chipping away on my heels of like I always had to be doing something that was working for this eating disorder. I really felt like I was a, a slave to the eating disorder. And just, I cannot even begin to describe really how exhausting it was. I understand. I thought about eating more than anything else. It's just like this recursive cycle. I remember counting over and over again the number of calories I'd eaten that day. And I counted it like 35 times. I already knew the number. Yeah. But there's just this obsession with it and and manipulating how many more calories you're going to eat in the next meal and how that's going to factor into that total or whatever, however it manifests for you. I totally, totally understand. Now, here's the thing. Did that voice in your head that I call it the ego on on the show. So did that voice in your head ever really deeply believe that it could be skinny and that happy and healthy you said you also did one? I, I do. I, I think I did believe that. And, but you're never satisfied. I was never satisfied for a very long time. It's just like you lose five pounds, three pounds. And it's just this odd voice that's like cheering, like, yay, you did it, but you're not done. You're never satisfied. And yeah. Or you're scared you're going to gain it back. I remember being at the goal and then I was terrified. I was like, well, if I lose, if I eat this amount, I will lose. And then when you wanted to, I got to my maintaining, I suppose. Then I was terrified if I ate any more, I would gain. Did you ever have a point? I had one where I looked in the mirror and I was confused because I had gained a pound or two and I looked in the mirror. I was, you know, in high school at this time and I looked better in the mirror. There was some weird part, like the voice in my head didn't say I looked better, but there's this other part of me that was somehow removed from it that realized I did look better with a few more pounds on than when I stayed at the other weight. Did you ever have those weird kind of like almost out of body experiences? Oh yeah. I think, I mean, I, I think I, especially as my eating disorder went on and the years later is just like, I knew what looked healthy and like just from looking at pictures, even from over the years at numerous weights, whether it was really, really thin or just like at a healthier weight that 
I connected so much more with that healthy Lauren and some of those. And some of them where it was just like, it felt like a pseudo healthy, like right in treatment or out of treatment. Like I didn't really resonate with those, but the pictures where I'd been working harder towards recovery in that sense. And I think that's weird to say, like working towards recovery doesn't necessarily mean weight gain. And I think I was so confused about that for so long. To me, recovery was just either gaining weight or if I was losing weight, I was sick. And I think weight definitely is a telltale sign of eating disorder. But I think for me now, understanding recovery, recovery is such an internal process as well. And it's that peace and that loss of like that voice controlling, like being able to get my voice back is a huge dynamic in recovery. My sickest, my lowest of lows. And I was so connected with how awful I looked, how awful I felt, how like just sick I was. When I would look in the mirror, it wasn't like this body dysmorphia where I saw a fat Lauren. Like I knew I was sick and not well. And I hated looking in the mirror because I think I was kind of disgusted with what I looked like. I would critique and cut myself down in the opposite way. So whereas when my eating disorder had first started back in my middle school and 10-year-old years, I would look in the mirror and, you know, see, Lauren, you're ugly, fat, and stupid. And I would say that to myself verbally. It was just come out of my mouth. And when I would look in the mirror later on in life, at age 23, when I was my sickest, I would look in the mirror and just have to look away because I couldn't look. And so it became not only this, like the person in the mirror suffering, but the soul suffering below as well. It was just a really deep, dark place. I think a lot of people sometimes think that eating disorders or people with eating disorders, oh, she sees herself as fat and she's not. And by the time I got until my later years, I mean, I saw what other people saw. And I, it was not being able to accept myself for who I was. And also, it had become so habitual how I lived um, and the eating disorder had become my compass and again, my identity and my comfort in an odd way. They're so like in- intricate. <laughs> I wonder, I think for me, it was, I was trying to control things I couldn't control through focusing on something that I could do. I could master this. I can't control other things that are going on in my life, but I can, I can do this. Is that how you felt? Definitely. What were you running from? Um, I think, well, in grad school, it was the stress of grad school. Yeah, let's actually move forward. 23 was the lowest point. Yeah, like my breaking point. Like, I don't think I would have gone another month, like, living had the people not intervened in my life. And I say that with all seriousness. I was not in a healthy place at all and had just sharply started to decline and was very still disconnected with that fact that people can die from eating disorders. And I have only known, I knew a friend I had actually met at Ramuda Ranch that went my first treatment center that did pass away. She was my exact same age and she passed away later in college and her college years. It didn't hit that close to home when doctors would say you could die from this. Bring me up to 23. Is that the grad school years where you were super unhappy? Yeah, so that was grad school. So like, again, lots of ups and downs through even college. And um, I had gone away to my third treatment center in college had gotten pretty sick during my freshman year of college, um, but managed to like maintain and I say a managed recovery, like have a managed recovery where I was out of lower weight, but still like that voice in my head and the constant thinking about uh, food and exercise was there. Grad school came around. My parents had asked me to come home during my senior year of college because I was not well my last semester. 
they didn't want me to be too far from home. I was in college in Austin at the time. And so I came home, finished my last class. I only had three hours left to do. So I finished that correspondence, got my first job as a news producer. So I'd studied broadcast journalism in school and wanted to be the next Katie Couric on the Today Show. So I was working at the NBC in Little Rock and I just remember like feeling so like itchy to get out of Arkansas by the end of like, you know, six, seven months into living at home. It's hard to live at home again after you've moved out for four years. So what does everyone do? They go to grad school when they don't know what else to do. Um, So that's what I did. It was also around the recession time. So everyone was telling me to get out of journalism at the time. I just applied to cool cities where I thought, you know, it'd be cool to get away And I decided to study occupational therapy. I didn't know too much about occupational therapy, but I knew it was a job meant like centered on helping people. And I was tired of reporting on house fires and homicides. So I just like anything's better than that. So I went to grad school. So decided to leave. My parents said they were not going to financially support me because I was not doing well, but I could go. I'm an adult. So it was the first time I had ever really felt like I'm really on my own. Moved away, and that first year of grad school, I just remember being so stressful. Not only like the school stress, there was a lot 40 hour weeks spent in classes and doing homework and stuff. Been a while since I'd done all that, and then um, just the stress of being on my own financially, not to mention that it detracted from my seven hour a day workout. Seven hours a day. Yeah. So at this time, I was. Morning, noon, and night in the gym on a stairmaster or doing some routine, like same routines, basically, um, just in health and fitness magazines I would find and just spinning my wheels in the gym. And then what's driving you to the gym every day? What's the voice saying to you? Just feeling accomplished and achieved. And it's just kind of like what I did as far as like if I did X amount yesterday, then I had to like one up it the next day or if I didn't do the exact same. Otherwise, it was like dun, dun, dun. I don't know what will happen, but. <laughs> <laughs> it won't be in control. I won't be in control. At this point, you don't even want to look at yourself in the mirror. Right. It's literally just the voice is just running the show. There's not even any outcome it's even getting because right. it doesn't even like the outcome. It's just the accomplishment at that point. It's just the habit of it. Yeah, I'm so habitual. By the summer, after my first year of grad school, I survived that first year. And I just had a little bit more time on my hands. So my exercise just picked up a little bit more. And then with school starting back, like come August, I just remember feeling super stressed again, just thinking like, I'm going to have to go through another year of this. And I was just really not happy. I was not really being able to invest my full mind or anything to school. It was more of a hassle doing it. Why was your mind going? To the workouts? Yeah, to the workouts. And I had actually, during that spring year of my, that first year of grad school, had the dean of my college approach me, had me bring me into his office, and he had me sign a contract. Or I had to go see a doctor and a counselor, like very assumingly, without even knowing me or really knowing my story. But just remember feeling like, oh, my Scarlet A has followed me here. And very quickly learned that um, environment doesn't really change. Like I thought, you know, when I go away to school or Nashville, things will get better. That eating disorder was not going to change regardless of the environment. It was like internally, like me, that was going to have to change. But just remember feeling very ostracized from school and just like really, again, eked out that first year, just finishing it, 
and just jumping through the hoops and the loops that my school wanted me to. It's a pri- it was a private school, so they could have a little bit more, I guess, doctrine and whether I was admitted or not again the next year based on my weight and all this personal stuff. And I just felt like, again, I was back in this people-pleasing mode in a different way of just having to do what they wanted me to. It never really was like my recovery was being chosen by me. (laughs) It always felt like I was being told to do it. It was forced upon you. Yeah. And so it was kind of like I was very averse to it. I'm a very autonomous person in general and maybe stubborn in that way. But if you tell me to do something, I probably, I want to tell myself I can do something. Or if you tell me I can't do something, I'll tell you I can do it kind of thing. Did that voice ever want to change? Oh, yeah. Like, it wanted to change. I wanted to be healthy. I really genuinely wanted to be healthy. And I wanted to be healthy on healthy terms, on, like, my own terms, but on genuinely healthy terms, not on eating disorder healthy terms. And I did want that to change. I just didn't feel like anyone was really helping me do that. The methods and the modes, like even going to sitting counselor's offices and the counseling sessions I would have, it just felt like checklist or couch to from one week to the next. Even nutritionist office, it just never, I really connected with an individual that I worked with that really inspired me enough to really want to make a change or what change could look like more than doing what they wanted me to do. Okay. So let's go back to the gym. Cause I want to, I want to get, there's this huge climax where we're getting to. With the whole intervention thing, I had woken up one morning like usual, weighed myself that morning. And that was the first time I had seen 79 pounds since like middle school. I just remember that really striking me. Um, I'll say a disclaimer, regardless of what, again, an individual weighs, do you know when you're healthy and you're not healthy? And that was a moment when I was hit with the reality that I'm not healthy, regardless of what a number is. It's just like in my low glucose brain at the time, I could realize and capture that fact that this is not right. And I actually was scared, got scared for my life because I had been experiencing some physical side effects that whole past month of just like some labored breathing and uh, shortness in my breath when I would like run on the treadmill wildly or uh, doze off at the wheel of a car and just like not being able to function really. I mean, I remember my mom would say like, Lauren, you should not be driving. You should not be driving these kids because I would nanny kids in the summer. And I was just very disconnected with those bodily signs thinking those were showing me what's up. But when I saw this number, I was just like, okay, whoa, that's not cool. And I drove to the gym that morning and I remember praying aloud, just like, God, I feel way in over my head and I'm kind of at a breaking point. I am at a breaking point, not kind of. And I just pray that you help me make a change today. And I was praying this out loud. And I don't talk a ton out loud usually when I pray, but it just was like I was needed to have a conversation with God. And when I pulled up to the YMCA that morning, I was getting out of my car and collecting my magazines in my trunk. I carried stacks and stacks of like health and fitness magazines that I would read like my Bible on my treadmill or my stair mask. It was your doctrine. Yeah, exactly. And just reread the same issues over and over. I heard a voice come up behind me and said, hey, Lauren, how are you? And you kind of get startled that time of the morning thinking like coming up to me. <laughs> Some stranger starts walking up and exactly. says your name. Not only one, but um, I guess there were seven because the eighth angel, I call them my YMCA angels now, but he was at the bottom of the hill guarding the exit and the entrance. So I would not escape. 
these people circled around me and said, Lauren, we're concerned about you. We've been watching you, especially for the past few weeks. And my exercise had picked up even more so the past few weeks. And just saying, it just seems like you've gone downhill or declined a little bit in your health. And we are very concerned and we just want to get you checked out. We want to take you to the hospital. So the doctors can look at you and just let us know like you're okay because we don't know what we would do if we saw you collapse on like a stairmaster or something. Now, did these people know you? They knew me like acquaintance wise, so like a a cordial hello, how are you in the gym in the mornings? I mean, they're like my parents' age, and I would just be cordial back and just kind of like small talk with them. But they all knew each other from again the gym. But they had been going at the same time for years, and I was kind of the newcomer on the block that past year, I guess. And you're praying to God, and you ask for help, and literally, like, moments later, these people surround you. Yeah, and it was crazy. (laughs) How did you react when that happened? Did you see it as, like, an answer to your prayer, or what what was the reaction? kind of in the back of my head had that, like, this, like, God, this is not what I prayed for. (laughs) What did did you want God to do? (laughs) I really wanted him to just give me internal strength to be able to say no to certain things and to be able to eat a little bit more. (laughs) I mean, I think I was just really tired of fighting too, like of fighting myself (laughs) and fighting the eating disorder that it didn't take them too long to kind of coerce me, I guess you would say, into the car to take me to the hospital, even though I was still like very scared of the word hospital, but I was kind of put at ease when they said, you know, if the doctor says you're okay, we'll let you go. (laughs) And all I was thinking is, okay, well, nothing like dire has happened. I haven't passed out or, and I've been, you know, fine. (laughs) I just need to gain some weight. But they took me in. I mean, the ER doctor at Vanderbilt said the same thing. She was, he was like, well, nothing really happened. (laughs) Like the ER is used to seeing like gunshots and uh, car accidents, but my little angels just would not take no for an answer. Like when the doctor came back and doctors don't really always know what to look for with eating disorders just because they are kind of more foreign to them. And, um, they just kept coming up with all these tests. They were going to order, like get the psych person to eval her. And it really, they just kind of wanted to hold me there. And so my parents got there. My parents were on the way from Arkansas, which is about a five hour drive. They got there later that day, and they basically put me in a psych ward for two days. It was kind of a holding cell of just, like, what to do with her. My parents were very much like, okay, she really needs medical help. I was not well, and so they took me to a doctor in the area that specialized in eating disorders, and he saw it from the get-go. It was just I was not well, and he hospitalized me in a different hospital, and I ended up staying there four weeks. My Heart rate dropped that night that I was put in there into, um, I guess, the low 30s. So had I gone into the 20s, they were talking about having to break open my chest and put a pacemaker in me. And it's just like all this like crazy talk that night that that happened. I just remember laying in the bed and just all this commotion, like the nurses running around, my dad saying, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, and just praying. And I, I just remember feeling an odd sense of peace. Just feeling like God was saying, Lauren, this has gotten way out of hand, and now it's my turn to take the reins. Sit back, though. It's going to be a ride, and not in, like, a sniding way at all. It was just like, okay, God, this is, like, a rock bottom. From there on out, I knew things were going to be okay. I didn't, I had no idea what the journey entailed, and 
it was the longest four weeks for one in that hospital, just with the doctor decided to put a feeding tube in me. And I had been on a feeding tube in the past and just hated it and put like IV fluids, heart monitors, just a lot of medical model restoration. My body needed, it needed help in some sort of way. (laughs) And, but at the end of that four weeks, I was thinking, okay, I'm good to go. And the doctor said, nope, you either can go into treatment or you can stay here for another six to eight weeks and we'll continue to tube feed you and refeed you. And I did not want either, but I wanted to get that tube out of my nose. So I remember saying, okay, fine, I'll go to treatment. And even though not believing it worked, I'll make a pact with you. I'll go for six weeks. Yeah, because how long have you been in treatment or how many times have you been in treatment by that point? I've been in like a formal inpatient center like three times before. So it's just kind of like a dime a dozen is what I felt like. It didn't feel like that was the next step from an intuition perspective? Oh, no, I wanted that. That's where I felt. Like, I felt motivated to, A, not go back through the hospital, like, what I had been through, but to just continue to, like, I can, I got this from here. I want to go back to school now and just get on with my life. So you really did believe that. And that seems to be the pattern, right? That it's like, I've got this. I can do this. Right. But the doctor just, I, I didn't have an option. So ended up. Like looking for treatment centers can be like looking for a university to go to. There's so many out there. If you go on different websites, they're not that different from one another and they're not that descriptive either. <laughs> so it's kind of like come away here and get better. And as a girl with an eating disorder or in recovery, you want to know like what do the days look like and what do the meals look like? What are they going to expect me to do? And none of that information is too descriptive on their websites. And so it's just kind of like you're left there to decide, go somewhere. And I called up a nutritionist I had worked with when I lived in Austin back in college because I thought, okay, I'll go back to Austin and maybe she's still there and I'll just find a team there. And I love that city. She had moved to Miami, Florida, and she was working at a treatment center down there. And so I ended up connecting with her just to ask her advice because I guess she was probably one of the only professionals I had ever worked with that I remember at least making an impact and feeling like she listened and she heard me. And I remember her saying, like, Lauren, I'm at this treatment center here. We do things a lot differently than most treatments. I think this could be very beneficial for you. And just really on what she said, I just believed her. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll go there. And ended up begging my dad if I could go there as opposed to my insurance never covered anything. But they were going to cover another a treatment center that was a medical model, like a hospital-type program because I acknowledge that, but I did not want to be in a sterile environment and just thought like, that's not very life giving to me to be in a hospital bed again, just in Denver, Colorado or wherever. He ended up kind of gifting me like, okay, I will invest in you going here, which he did lovingly and ended up going there. And for what I thought was going to be six weeks, ended up turning into 11 months. And it was the longest 11 months of my life. Recovery really only began there. It really started when I got out. But I did a lot of work, not only physically, but just digging deep there. I, it was the first time I ever, I ever worked with a counselor who counseled me through a lot of spiritual warfare too. Um, for me, my eating disorder felt very like a spiritual warfare day after day, just fighting demons. That was probably one of the most beneficial things is the person that I worked with. And then this nutritionist that I had known in Austin, just having that connection. And they did, they taught uh, the intuitive eating model there. 
I really connected more with that as opposed to like, we're going to teach you how to re-eat again. Now you need to count these calories or these exchanges and just eating like food was still black and white. Whereas the intuitive eating model, it's more teaching you how to eat based on hunger and fullness and really like getting connected back with your body again. And also like mindful eating too. Um, they incorporate there. So being mindful that you still need to eat, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner throughout the day, nourish yourself, but being more in touch intuitively with your hunger and fullness will change throughout the day. When I got out of treatment, ended up staying in Miami or deciding to stay there because I had no idea who I was like really outside of there. And I was like, do I really want to go back to school? Do I not? This is like a whole new starting point. So I just need time to think. And what age is this? I was 24. I believe. No, maybe I turned 20. I think I turned 23 actually in treatment. So I turned in October is when my birthday was. So I went into treatment September, um, Labor Day weekend, and then ended up turning 23 not long after. So yeah, 23 years old. I decided to stay in Miami for at least, I think I stayed there for six more months. As I got out, I lived in a transitional living apartment there. And um, started a community. I found an awesome church community and made some new friendships there and then ended up falling into an amazing CrossFit box, which I think part of my recovery. It just helped me see exercise in a new way because before it had been about like my stare and aesthetically and CrossFit was way more about gaining strength from the inside out and a lot of more performance based. So can you do handstands? Can you do pull-ups? Can you do like a little bit heavier barbell. I remember really just that resonated with me a lot more. And not only that, but also the community I fell into. So right now, what does the voice say to you? What happened to the change in the voice after you got through the 11 months treatment? It's very numb. Like I don't really hear that voice. I hear Lauren's voice. It just went away or how did you, did you talk back to it as you're going through treatment? How did you handle it from it's like oppressiveness to now it being numb? It was a lot of like sitting through its oppressiveness, like really like gritting my teeth and like forcefully kind of doing so sometimes like when I initially got to treatment and throughout treatment, you don't really get to exercise for instance. So I was on my butt for X amount of months and just having to really sit with that and be okay with that. Like before when I had to sit with that, I would not sit with that. I never would sit with that. So that was, I think, huge and part of the way, like having to take that time to, I mean, I was forced to take a step back, but to take a step back and kind of reevaluate and be able to like see really all the truth the voices come to life, like that I've been hearing, like instead of letting it drive me so much, like kind of face it. A lot of times people transfer their addiction from one thing to another, right? So it just changes the energy that was going to eating goes somewhere else. Did you have any of that or not? I, no. You just went through it and it finally quieted. It kind of smooth. I mean, it's not like all like a linear process either. Like I think you can have times like where it would flare up or I would hear the voice more and like it would present itself in similar ways. I think I did go through a little shopping um, addiction and treatment. (laughs) We would order things like online. That's about (laughs) shopping we could do. But I was like, okay, well I'm having to gain weight or get a new body. So I'm going to get lots of new clothes and transferred some of that energy into like a material 
but then kind of like that cooled down and just really being able to like accept myself and learn that new healthy relationship with my body and food and fitness and all of that. That's awesome. Because if we just distract the voice with something else, we're not really dealing with it. But when you can go through it, face it. And um, I'm studying Gandhi right now. And he talks about nonviolent non-cooperation. And I feel like that's like such a huge element that we can apply to that voice, right? So we can be nonviolent. We can not fight it because that just creates the retaliation of it makes it even stronger, but also not cooperate with it when it's telling us to do things that aren't in alignment with our intuition. Oh, yeah, very much so. How has this affected other aspects of your life thus far? Like, where are you now with all of this? It will always have shaped me in positive ways. What have you learned from it? Definitely learned, A, how to be like just peace with myself, like to like really be like, okay, life is so short too. And for, I think I spent so many years pursuing things that really honestly don't matter. Just that my days would revolve around what I was eating and how many calories were in it or how many hours I could step away on a Stairmaster, like how meaningless that was. And like, so it's just definitely given me an appreciation for life outside of those things. If anything, food and exercise is meant to be an enhancement to your life in order to fuel you to live your life as opposed to living your life for those things. I think on that front, that's taught me that. It's taught me not to settle because life is too short and I settled for far too long. What were you settling for before? I was settling for A, that you know this is how life is going to be, I guess, for ever and not really believing recovery was possible and being told that it was not being told that it was something I would struggle with for ever. <laughs> you don't struggle with it anymore at all now? I really don't. I really honestly, I, I think I can acknowledge truths from lies and can have those moments where I have to be more on guard with that. Like when I know that stuff can creep up, like when I'm stressed, for instance, knowing like the way I used to cope with stress and to be on the lookout for those signs and signals. How do you deal with stress now? Um, being able to talk about it. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> Who do you talk about it with? I have some really great friends. Just being able to be open and honest. I think going through however many years of counseling I went through definitely made me more vulnerable <laughs> or able to be more vulnerable with people. And not that I go up to strangers on the street and say, hey, I'm having a rough day. But being able to um, connect with friends in a deeper way. Working out in a healthy way, I think, is a way to deal with stress, but I don't think it's the only way. I love to write, and I love to be outside, too, and just taking, like, fresh air, like, time outbreak for myself. <laughs> yeah. All right, I have a question for you. So I'm going to put you in a scenario where you're back and you're talking to your eight-year-old self. I think that's where it started, right? In fourth grade. Nine. And... You just had your recess where that girl asked everyone what they weighed. What would you tell the girl and what would you tell yourself if you could go back and, and have a conversation with them? Individually, you don't have to have the same conversation with, with each. The girl, man, that's tough. That everybody is different, really. And everyone, like, weight is just a number. Weight does not define you or your identity. And I think for so long, I walked around with, like, thinking, you know, see a person on the street and you see what they weigh. Like I saw myself as just a number walking around and like, you are not a number. You have so much more worth. And even as like mean as I think, you know, that comment was like, 
she was insecure too in herself. And she learned it from somewhere, right? right? So she didn't just like grow out of the womb probably, right? right? She had to learn that that was something she should hate herself for. So she was probably hurting. In her own way, yeah. Yeah, from whatever experiences. So what would you tell yourself? Um, I mean, I definitely would tell myself that same thing and just say, Lauren, you have so much to give and your number does not define you. You have so much worth and really with these other little girls, it doesn't matter so much what other people think about you. And like, ultimately, I believe God sees you as you are fearfully and wonderfully made. He says that and you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And so really affirming myself of those truths. Yeah, I would have saved myself a lot of heartache from spinning my wheels for so long of not believing that and believing I was something more to be or someone I had to be. How to complete yourself through it. Here's something I want to touch on because when I was at my lower weight, no one said anything to me. No one except for the doctor. And my friends may have had mm-hmm. conversations behind their my back or anything, but yeah. no one really sat me down. Even my parents didn't really have a conversation with me about it. But your gym members and your gym friends had that intervention with you and they actually had the courage to step up and have a conversation with you. What would you recommend for anyone listening who is concerned about a friend that they know or a family member? What would you tell them to do in order to approach the issue? I mean, depending on how close you are to the person, if it's someone that you feel like like you have that relationship with that you can just talk to them and just express your concerns like I think that is valid I think the people that are probably dearest to me I would genuinely like take that to heart more so than if it is more of an acquaintance type relationship that may not be within your realm at first like I think the relationship needs to be there but the gym members weren't in a relationship with you to that level so it's right so I mean that was a very dire intervention in general so that was just an extreme situation yeah. I mean, there are extreme situations and it would, I would say that was a very divine intervention too, because they all, they really came together to talk about that the night before. Like one of them mentioned it, they were concerned about me and someone else was like, Oh, I've actually been feeling the same way. And like, it wasn't like, Oh, I guess too long with that out. It's just, they all came to terms with like, they were worried. I think that was a very extreme situation though. I don't think everyone needs to perform an intervention in a parking lot and take the person to the hospital. <laughs> what if they're an acquaintance, but it's not a dire situation? Is there anything they should do or can do? I think if they can speak maybe with someone that is a little bit closer to that person and express their concern, relaying it to that. I think even through, not directly, you don't have to directly at first address that, affirming that person of their worth more so, rather than blatantly just saying, I'm worried about you because I used to go into anywhere I went, grocery stores or to serve the homeless in the homeless kitchen. And people would come up to me and just be so blunt and just say, you need to eat a cheeseburger or you're so skinny, you're too skinny. And that did not help at all either. Or like if I was in the gym in a workout and someone came up and tried to casually strike up a conversation and say, my daughter's been there before and I didn't know them at all. I just really wanted to run from that person. <laughs> And so that wasn't helpful in that sense. So I think before you even like just blatantly state the obvious, letting that person know you see them as a person and getting to know them even like on a little bit deeper level as an acquaintance before just expressing a thought of concern. I love validating their worth before talking about 
that problem. Mm-hmm. And what would you tell anyone listening who is where you were when you were 23 or at any point in that whole struggle? Oh, I would definitely say there is hope. And I always thought recovery was possible for anyone else but me. Why so? Just because I knew how like sick I was in my head and how like the voice had been with me forever. So it seemed (laughs) for over half my life and how much I felt like it defined me. I would tell them not to give up on hope and that there is true freedom to be had and to really also picture your life. Like, what do you want from your life? I never really asked myself that question too much or it was too internal, like, or external, like too focused on the outward. But what do I really want from my life? And what are my goals? What am I working towards? And what are my passions that I'm pursuing? I mean, that's a really big, I think you need to be connected with who you are. And there's more to life than this eating disorder. What is it that drives you? And if you don't know what that is, it's the best time to find it because there, you are gifted with different passions and purposes, talents, skills, and dreams for a reason. And there's a reason not everyone does the same job or has the same dreams in this life because we're all unique. Get connected with that and then pursue that. Thank you, Lauren. This is beautiful. And I'm going to let this whole episode be a devotion to what doubts or resistance have you had to face in your personal life? And what would you tell someone just starting out on this journey? Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story with us. And I deeply hope that this hits home for people that needed to hear it. Yeah, I I do as well. And I do want to mention, like, I did just start my Thrive. And that is the reason I created that was to be the person or the professional that I never really felt like I had in my recovery and to inspire others to be find life outside of their eating disorder because you were they were meant to more than just survive but to thrive. And so if people want to reach out to you about that, how can they do it? So the best way would probably be go onto my website and they can just it's meant to thrive.com. Thank you so much, Lauren. I really, really appreciate you spending your time with us and sharing your heart. Yeah, thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you for your time. And there you have it. Thank you, Lauren, so much for coming on the show and sharing your journey with us. If you would like to leave a message for Lauren, please go over to Twitter. Her handle is Thrive321. And again, if you'd like to give me a little birthday present, please go over to iTunes and leave a review for the show. It means so much to me. Thank you guys so much, and I'll see you next week.